Hello, 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 and welcome to the Hashtag Five Things podcast, where we deep dive into five things going on in the world of social media. I'm your host, Joey. We are joined this week again by Juliana. Hello, Juliana. Hey. And Tommy. Hello, Tommy. Hi, Joey. Who are you wearing? <laughs> oh, we'll get into that and more in a bit. Uh, we've got lots of things going on this week. Uh, first off, Texas banned social media platforms from removing posts based on political views. Uh, and then, wow, it's a doozy of a week for Facebook. Uh, a Facebook internal report reveals the harm Instagram has on teenagers' mental health. Uh, a Facebook program reportedly lets celebrities avoid moderation. And Instagram will add a favorites option, allowing users to prioritize some accounts on their feed. And then we will wrap it all up and discuss how TikTok has democratized the 2021 Met Gala. Let's dive in. Juliana, talk to us about Texas. I mean, in as we watch the environment crumble around us, I'm glad that Texas has its priorities straight. Not to slam uh, our friends over in Texas, uh, but the most recent news is a little interesting. Uh, the governor of Texas signed a bill uh, a little bit earlier this month that is banning social media platforms from removing posts because of the political views expressed in them, which I think on its surface is kind of information that we've heard a lot of in a conversation from conservatives talking about the way that social media platforms behave or the type of posts that seem to be overwhelmingly monitored uh, on social media. So the intent of the bill is that large platforms like Facebook and Twitter, they can no longer remove, play down, or otherwise moderate content because of a user's political perspective or ban the user entirely because of a post that um, is related to the political beliefs. So even something such as the fact check that you might see underneath the post that has less than truth in it is the type of thing that would be um, not allowed uh, as according to this bill in Texas. Also, uh, it requires that companies regularly publish reports showing how often they receive complaints about the content and how often they take posts down. And so this is pretty pretty widely sweeping, or at least it would be. Uh, the law would cover companies with more than 50 million monthly active users in the U.S. Uh, it would apply to anyone who lives in Texas, does business there, or shares or receives social media content in the state. So I would say it's probably most similar to the... Uh, rules recently where, you know, for example, if you want to post a job description that's visible in Colorado, you have to you have to show, show how much it's going to pay. It's something that basically if any of the information is going to be passing through uh, Texas, uh, the social media platforms will have to kind of abide by these rules. Again, the point is that this is all in theory because it is pretty... While it does abide by the kind of thinking and the desire that you have definitely seen over the past couple of years from conservative outlets and, you know, sort of talking heads, there are obvious implications about how exactly this is going to be enforced and whether or not there's even the kind of ability of uh, an individual who would sue Facebook to be able to discern whether or not their information is being blocked, censored, whatever have you, um, because of things such as misinformation or inciting XYZ, whether it's, you know, uh, violence or harassment or whatever have you, and trying to relate that instead to being a very distinct political belief. So it's just a very interesting kind of 
another chapter in the, I guess for lack of a better term, virtue, signal, virtue signaling culture war that a Texas kind of seems to be on the forefront of, or at the very least has kind of the most eyes uh, on it because of its size. And it's just will be very interesting, one, to see whether or not Facebook, Twitter, uh, other social media apps actually take this seriously, because it's very likely that this will blow up in a legal sense, um, or if it's just another kind of conversational point uh, to get our eyes back on things that are perhaps, you know, good fodder for upcoming elections. Yeah, I mean, my my thought on it is that it feels like a a posture to the right to again, like we're doing something. Um, but you know, this isn't a political show. This is a social media one. So my question to you both, uh, we'll start with Tommy. What, what do you think the platform should do? Do you think this gets escalated to, to the federal level or how should the platforms react? That's an interesting question. I think the platforms, there isn't really anything that they can do. I mean, a big point of this discussion is the right to freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is freedom of speech, freedom of censorship from the government. It is not concerning private companies and how they moderate their own platforms. And so I think, I mean, a similar bill was raised in Florida and was struck down by a judge there. Um, I think the similar course of action will happen in Texas. I don't perceive I don't foresee this bill getting any real mileage. I think it might be just, you know, as Jules, you're saying, fodder for the culture war that conservatives are taking against social media platforms. I think what we're going to see is platforms should not respond and conservatives will continue to flock to apps like Parler. You know, these recent rises in apps targeted for and centered around conservative beliefs where they can, you know, have their fun and be free from the interference that they are finding on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And so I think the best course of action for these platforms to be would just be to, you know, keep moving forward, try to maintain on steady waters, because otherwise I think they'll get engulfed in this culture war and it would just not be pretty. It's also so funny because it, you know, not to not to spoil it, but we're talking in the same episode about, you know, uh, Facebook getting flack for its kind of laissez-faire attitude towards certain individuals. And a lot of those individuals, um, or a large percentage of those individuals include political commentators and individuals who span, you know, backgrounds of liberalism and conservatism. So it's just very interesting that you're seeing, you know, at least in Facebook sense, kind of having to take it from both sides there. Uh, but it's just very intriguing the way that, you know, some spaces want there to be more uh, moderation. And then they're also having to fight the conversation on whether or not they're, uh, they're being too severe. Yeah. So uh, we could, we could flip the script here a little bit and jump down to our third thing and come back to you, Tommy. But that's an interesting point, uh, Juliana, talking about Facebook um, and their program that lets celebrities avoid moderation. Why don't we jump to that? Because it's a it's actually a perfect segue from uh, the last conversation, and and then we'll go back to the internal report with you, Tommy. A remix, we love it. Yeah, mixing things up, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm absolutely fascinated and in love with this uh, this cool Joey sitting backwards on his chair, 
no rules in this classroom. <laughs> so this is, I highly recommend for anyone listening to sit and read the Wall Street Journal's um, kind of deep dive into the topic of Facebook's program called uh, Crosscheck and the sentiment that it's essentially allowing celebrities to avoid moderation. Uh, it's a, it's a 25 minute read, but it's definitely worth it. Uh, top line, uh, Facebook is maintaining and has been maintaining for a little while this expansive program that exempts athletes, politicians, other high profile users from its typical moderation process. And that's kind of what you're going to see across the board from, you know, kind of more, um, touch and go articles. But when you look into it, really what has happened is that Facebook has this program called Crosscheck specifically because they're trying to avoid what they call PR fires. So it's this idea that if a individual is, uh, you know, has a lot of notoriety, has a, a pretty big public image, if their content is reported on Facebook and it turns out that it's, you know, not actually violating any of Facebook's rules, if because there isn't, you know, someone because their automated process perhaps gets it wrong, uh, there's a possibility of their content getting pulled. And the worry was that in situations where content is pulled for uh, incorrect reasons, that you then have these very high status, high profile individuals who are then blasting Facebook saying, you know, you, they're taking down our content, they're, they're practicing censorship. There's an incident with an independent journalist where they were blocked from, um, you know, broadcasting uh, out to their audience and uh, speaking to their position against, you know, individuals like Osama bin Laden and the fact that he wasn't pro-Osama bin Laden, but that was pulled because it was misinterpreted as being pro-Osama bin Laden. And so you now have this journalist who is saying to their followers that, you know, there are individuals within Facebook that are, you know, against like liberals in, in the Middle East. And it just ends up being this absolute disaster. And so that's where Crosscheck really comes from, is trying to avoid the situations. If someone has the ability to speak to a pretty big audience, Facebook wants to be able to kind of put in a more in-depth process to determine whether or not their content is actually uh, violating the rules. The problem is, is that with anything, uh, there's just so many people that use Facebook. And what happens is that now uh, Facebook has this, you know, 5 million plus uh, member list of individuals who are prominent because they're celebrities, athletes, commentators, talking heads, whatever have you. And there's not enough manpower to really be able to individually review whether their content is going against Facebook's guidelines. And so what happens is, is that you have a bunch of individuals who, even if their posts are reported, it gets a free pass to stay up because there isn't, they aren't going through the same automated process as a regular person using Facebook. And also on top of that, you then have something called the whitelist, which effectively renders people immune from enforcement actions. So even if you know, you're on the cross-check list, you still have the possibility of an individual independently reviewing your content, taking it down. But if you're whitelisted, that'll never happen. And it, of course, creates a situation for Facebook where they are publicly saying how important it is for individuals to follow the guidelines. We also have been seeing a lot over the past uh, 2016 and 2020 election about the importance of you know, taking down misinformation. And now you see that there's effectively this policy and practice within Facebook that completely goes against that. And right now, Facebook is kind of having to deal with the severity of their effectively being a VIP list that says you don't have to follow the rules of this uh, this platform. It's pretty wild and I think just kind of speaks to the difficulty of a platform like Facebook that has 
so many people on it and so many things that are being said, trying to work within the bounds of essentially not trying to uh, upset their popular friends, but also remaining true and honest to the terms of service and the belief that it seems to have uh, of the importance of, you know, honesty, fair practice, and uh, creating a safe space for users. Wow. So um, what's interesting about this is it actually does connect very well back to our first thing. It, wh- where my brain immediately goes is to our, is to the last president and his posts and how he got banned. Is this program directly responsible for how some of his posts made it out there without any sort of uh, view from a person or even an algorithm before it went live? I mean, is th- this is the same, this is that same program. So let's just put on our hypothetical hats for a minute here. What would have happened if this if this program was actually operating in the way it could have been? Do you think there would have been more backlash like the Texas ban sooner? Yeah, so I think I think what is interesting about the way that Crosscheck operates is that on one end you have what seems to be kind of people just running amok on Facebook uh, and being able to to say whatever they want, but it also creates this environment where if you happen to, especially if you're you know, running for public office or you're kind of, uh, have someone who's sort of directly combating, um, you or sort of directly opposite of you, uh, for the viewership or share of information or just kind of the, the space in people's minds. If you manage to get enough people on your side, enough followers, enough presence, you then are allowed to throw things out in the wind that stay up longer and are, even if they're wrong, you know, hearing the, hearing the truth one time and then having the lie sit up for, you know, X amount of days, it then creates this sort of imbalance in who is getting the spotlight and who is getting the share of people's minds because you just happen to have a little bit more clout effectively. So it's very interesting. And you've seen it used both in favor of Donald Trump. You've seen it used against Donald Trump. You've seen it used in both ends for, um, for, you know, all basically any person who's, who's uh, prominent in the space of politics. But it just says a lot about kind of the role of social capital in everything. It, it's very Black Mirror-esque to be uh, reductive. But, you know, if you, you get enough social points, you get to say that uh, you can take a horse tranquilizer for a vaccine. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's the most frustrating part, I think, for me. Oh, sorry, Joey, to cut you off. But Facebook is, it is what it is, you know? It is a frustrating behemoth that is responsible for a lot of social ill right now in terms of misinformation, in terms of the horse tranquilizer of it all. And so seeing this, also we should like emphasize, this was a report leaked by the Wall Street Journal. This is not supposed to be public information, um, as well as the Instagram report that is coming up next on this podcast. It's just so frustrating to me to see an app that was that claimed that they were in favor of equal treatment, equal moderation, knowing that they were participating in the system that allowed people with, as you said, the correct social capital and the clout, frankly, to just run amok and, you know, create this culture of post-truth, of COVID misinformation, of QAnon. I'm thinking mostly in terms of the 
the day-to-day life of a user on Facebook, not so much from a brand perspective right now, but if you look at it from a brand perspective, then this app is not playing by the rules. And it's just, I mean, there's a reason Facebook has a lot of negative attention against it. It's things like this. And so I think it'll be interesting. We might see another new wave of anti-Facebook rhetoric. The current administration is anti-Facebook right now. The last administration was. Mark Zuckerberg famously testified in front of Congress about the platform. So I think this is going to be, you know, the start of another another hate wave, which is the internet's favorite pastime. We've all been through a hate wave or two. So it'll be <laughs> interesting to see what comes out of this one. Yeah, well, from one leaked document out of Facebook to the next, um, Tommy, talk to us about the internal report that reveals uh, the harm that Instagram has on teenagers and their mental health. Yeah, I mean, the Zuck cannot catch a break this week. This is, (laughs) he really can't. This is unfortunately a very sad report that was, it was internal research done by Facebook and Instagram, leaked by the Wall Street Journal. I mean, they're having a great week. We talk about them all the time now. Um, that revealed the impacts that Instagram has on the mental health of its teenage users, specifically its uh, young female teenage users and young women users. Um, I'm going to pull up some stats that are not fun at all. One study by Facebook of teen instant users in the U.S. and U.K., that's mostly where the research comes from, found that more than 40% of those who reported feeling unattractive to the feeling started when they started using Instagram Research reviewed by Facebook's top executives concluded that Instagram was engineered towards greater social comparison than rival apps like TikTok and Snapchat. And this social comparison was the start of a lot of this unhealthy mental feelings and, you know, this anxiety and depression. It comes from this social comparison. Teens told Facebook that they felt addicted to Instagram and teens blamed Instagram for the increased rates of anxiety and depression. So it's just really sad news about how people are responding to this app. This report to me is an important reminder as someone who uses this app extensively for my work and for my pleasure. Um, I I mean, I, I love Instagram. I was an early adapter to it. That we, we are what make Instagram. We are the the population that create the content for the app. We're the ones who unfortunately partake in this cycle of social comparison. We kind of feed into it. And I noticed that people on the app, both influencers, brands, and users, are trying to take back the narrative, trying to make Instagram more casual, as opposed to seeing the picture-perfect fake version of someone's life which I think a lot of influencers, I mean, that's their brand. It's the best image of themselves. That's how they sell their product and their brand. And so I think it's just a reminder that you can't control how people perceive the content you put out on the app. You can't control how people react to it. And we really, we talked about it last week with the, with the blues clues of it all. And, you know, we hopefully are moving towards a place in culture that practices radical sincerity and kindness more. But in the meantime, before we get to that spot, if we ever get there, we're still in a place where people are being harmed by social media and by Instagram, especially. So it's just, it's an important and sad reminder that we have to check ourselves and what we put out on this app as brands and as people, 
And I'm going to try to, you know, do my part, post a meme or two on my story and just try and, I don't know, be put out the positivity that I want people to receive. But that's so like frou-frou and yogi, but it's, it, this is sad. It's a really hard report to read, but I recommend everyone check it out because there's a lot of stats like this in the article that I didn't talk about. I mean, I completely agree with you, Tommy. I think it's, it's easy to be nice. It's easy to be a good person and to put out positive things in the world. I mean, this, this report is heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking, especially that it's happening to the, you know, youngest users, um, on the platform. Um, I'm curious, uh, for the both of you, same question. Um, what, what jumped out to you the most? Like what, what, what fact here, um, what, what stat really disappointed you the most? I think to me, it was the social comparison of it all where people weren't feeling this way from TikTok or from Snapchat or Twitter or Facebook. It really was Instagram specific. I know when I was younger, I felt a lot of FOMO, fear of missing out from seeing my friends on the app and their perfect life and their perfect clothes and their perfect party. I sound like Olivia Rodrigo right now. Um, But I think that Instagram is uniquely, unfortunately, suited to this problem. They're almost creating it in a way that other apps aren't. I think because TikTok especially is more performance-based and Twitter, no one feels good about other people on Twitter. People just post their like darkest thoughts into the void. Um, so this is a really just an Instagram-exclusive thing. So now I'm interested to see how this app in particular will combat this problem that really only it's facing. Yeah, I think as well, because I was also very intrigued by the breakdown in it not only being about social comparison, but the fact that it's a space where a lot of the content is very much just focused on the the three quarters above your your collarbones. It's all about your face and kind of just constantly being engaged in that very like tight space. And I think it says a lot about the fact that Instagram um, relatively recently was talking about shifting into being more about video and being about something that's a little bit more dynamic. And I'm wondering if in trying to emphasize content that has a little bit more dimension to it, that you will hopefully see people being a little bit more raw, honest, authentic. I think the the trend of the photo dump, that's a mixture of, you know, insert thirst trap, blurry photo of your food, you falling down at a bar is kind of a little bit of that like microcosm movement towards being a little bit more honest on it and you know showing a little bit more of the layers of your lifestyle and personality. But I'm just hoping, or rather I would love to see there being more efforts uh, from the, the great minds at uh, Zuck Inc. to just try to give it a little bit more of like a lifestyle feel. Yeah. You know, it was interesting in the report, um, Senator Blumenthal was... Um, quoted and compared it to big tobacco and how, um, you know, they were targeting big tobacco was targeting younger users and that Instagram and Facebook are using the same, um, methods. I'm curious, is there anything brands can do to help combat this? Is there, is there any role for the brands in this, um, this sad reality? I mean, I think it's, it's difficult, right? Because you do see there still being the value in the aesthetic right now that is that sans serif, very kind of polished pastel, very kind of like clean uh, aesthetic that I don't think has a lot of uh, space yet for something that's a little bit more uh, true to form. I think what will be important is kind of just 
not having the entirety of, or rather, if you're a larger brand, not having the entirety of the way you present yourself to consumers being Instagram, because it seems they're in a very vulnerable space. Seems like there's kind of a lot going on in their heads when they're on the app and, uh, you know, wouldn't want to be kind of associated exclusively with just another thing that makes them feel bad. Uh, and I think if you're a influencer or someone who's kind of, you know, your own personal brand, I think that there is, you know, with anything, the you know, journey of a thousand miles, single step, it starts with the man in the mirror, all of that. Like, there's no, there's nothing to be lost, I feel in trying to be a little bit more human with your followers. So knowing that there is a kind of void within them or a very specific hurting within them, if you do have um, you know, a younger audience, especially a younger female audience, to address that and be real about it and kind of give them a space where their feelings are acknowledged, um, I think that that would be a really great opportunity to be able to connect. Yeah. Okay, so Instagram, that we're going to lighten things up a little bit here. Um, Instagram will add a favorites option, allowing users to prioritize some accounts in their feed. Tommy, talk us through this update. Thank God, a nice bit of news for the Zuck Inc. That's how I'm going to call it now. Thank you, Jules, for that. Zuck, Zuck Incorporated. Um, so yeah, it's basically, as you said, Joey, Instagram's adding a new feature, favorites, that allows users to categorize accounts as priorities. So that way, the posts that you prioritize will land higher in your feed. That's basically all there is to it. But I think this is a really great step forward for Instagram. I know that people have felt that the app with its new algorithm, with its non-chronological algorithm, has sort of lost its way in, you know, the trying to make reels happen in the online shopping in all of that. So this is a way for people to take back control over their experience on Instagram. And so it's just, it's a very small thing. It's simple to do. It just makes your timeline more you. And so I think people will start to use Instagram again as a way to engage with friends, engage with the brands you want to see. I mean, I follow what, 700 people on Instagram, probably 800. I'm not sure right now. Now I get to prioritize the accounts I want to see, the meme pages, the friends, the brands I love, the aesthetic of. So I think it's just a really small, good step forward for the brand that allows people to take back control of their experience. And people think they have, now they have a greater part in their experience and people love feeling they have control over something. So I think it'll be interesting to see how people respond to it. Yeah, I think it'd be cool. I mean, I personally, I felt like the, the people I interacted with the most on Instagram tended to be at the top and that was already happening. But it sounds like this is more something that I can curate, which um, again, just um, makes the experience a little bit better. Um, okay, I think that was an easy update. I just think, um, you know, kind of in the same way when Snapchat released that or had that best friends, you know, feature and it kind of showed who was tracking who. I can't wait for the just swarm of people talking about like, oh, when, you know, when they go through your Instagram and find out your ex is on your favorites list. So I'm here for some new content. <laughs> I want beef. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's, let's, uh, let's take, a, let's take a step away from Zuck Incorporated. Uh, and now we will get into this is a Zuck heavy episode. It has been a Zuck heavy episode. Um, all right, let's let's take a step away from from him for a moment and talk about TikTok. 
talk about the Met Gala. Juliana, tell us how TikTok has democratized the 2021 Met Gala. Yeah, it's uh, it's great. I feel, you know, if you've gotten this far, if you ate all three of your vegetables about the demise of culture, then you get to have two pieces of dessert. So this, <laughs> um, it's kind of a, a larger scale, kind of just noting the, the revolution of who gets to be involved in spaces. But this kind of, um, the spark point, the sort of flashpoint that we're going to be focusing on is based on these two NYU roommates uh, two girls named Stella Wonder and Carol Checkby, uh, apologies if I mispronounced that, who shared this kind of mutual love for the Met Gala. And just something that they were interested in once the 2021 um, theme was released was to start writing down the predictions, both of who would show up and you know crush the theme, who would probably miss the mark, and kind of all of their just predictions that come with coming to an event that has a very sort of specific goal in mind, but also has a long history of people not maybe showing up with that goal in mind. And they were just so kind of in love and and fascinated by their own passion that they documented it all on TikTok. And this kind of blew up, you know, this this laundry list really of just kind of their own musings ended up being something that people were really entertained with, you know, casting their own votes what celebrity is going to, you know, like slay the theme, um, you know, who's actually going to show up. You know, you, you saw that there was almost 565,000 likes, 2 million views, people kind of wanting to take the, the TikTok and move it into a spreadsheet and all of this kind of this universe that launched out of just two girls wanting to talk about um, a fun little cosplay night for celebrities. And what was really kind of interesting about this and I think what this is really indicative of is the fact that the Met Gala, as you know, you can probably guess from the name, is one of the many things that kind of thrives on exclusivity. You know, there's a lot of spaces where there's still the longstanding pride in there being gates and gates on the gates, and that you know the the common folk aren't really allowed to participate. And the fact that this was a opportunity or a situation where you had you know 19. 20, 23-year-olds being able to sort of cast their vote and and remark upon uh, the movements of the celebrities and the elites and, you know, people who are kind of expected to be a little bit more untouchable or those on the stage and not those in the peanut gallery. It's very interesting because I think what it shows is that that idea of there still being these kind of like these gates, this, this exclusive um, world where the common folk aren't allowed to participate. There's no longer really a thing. You know, you even saw when the Met Gala actually happened, Little Nas X, who is, you know, in Generation X, was posting pictures from the gala, a space that's actually meant to be like phones off. You're not supposed to share anything that's going on once you actually get inside of it. And this younger generation, just that isn't something that's attractive to them. You know, gaslight gatekeep girl boss, that slogan, that kind of like meme that exists within TikTok, it's to emphasize the fact that not feeling as though there's pride and not allowing people access, that's not really something that they participate in. And, you know, you see this here in the space of the Met Gala, but you also saw it with like Bama Talk. You saw that there's a desire for people to kind of be in the know, as esoteric as it may be, uh, the space. And I just love the idea of this generation having the opportunity to feel free to move in any spaces that they wish and not feeling as though they're not allowed 
to participate or allowed to comment just because they perhaps don't have the credentials or the money or the, the clothes. I love that. And I love this. I think this actually it reminds me of earlier at the very beginning of 2021, the uh, the TikTok musical that happened. It's just, it's it's taking the, the platform and expanding it uh, beyond what the platform typically can do. And um, yeah, I think, I think it's awesome. Tommy, what did your, what was your take on uh, the Met Gala coverage? I thought it was really remarkable. I mean, I was going to say this too, how the Met before recent years was kind of, you know, the queen of the gaslight, the gatekeep and the girl boss and how it was purposely exclusive. You couldn't, you, there's no phones obviously, but this is the first year they're actually ever live streamed the red carpet on Twitter before it was just that you saw photos of it later in the newspapers in Vogue and other fashion publications. But now we had Kiki Palmer killing it on the mic all night and we got really unprecedented access. I think what's interesting this year also was the amount of influencers at the event. And I think the discourse around it, Emma Chamberlain aside, people generally liked her look and thought she was quote unquote worthy of being there where they complain about Addison Rae, you know, they complain about TikTokers who they thought didn't deserve to be there. Addison Rae, like her or not, has 84 million followers. She is a capital C celebrity. And so I think this is the start of the wave of Gen Z and people who gain fame and notoriety from social media taking over these prestigious events that weren't always welcoming to the common folk. I sound like a peasant, the common folk. And making it more attainable and accessible for all. I, there are so many backstage photos this year at the Met, which has really never happened before. Um, in pre- I love the Met, so it's never happened before in previous years, this access to it. And so I think if you, like from any, not just the Met, any brand, if you want to maintain success and you want to maintain interest, you have to let the people in at least a little bit. Exclusivity can only go so far before people write you off as, oh, I, I don't want to be there anyway. Who needs them? So I think this is a very good step forward for the Met. And I think we're going to see a lot more stuff like this in the future. No, I was just going to, uh, there's so many things we could talk about this week for the next hour. But um, I think, you know, just like you're saying, you have the Met, you have creating a musical, you have Telfar, like being a brand that no one can buy just means no one's going to buy you. So just be <laughs> like, you have to allow people to participate exactly what you're saying, Tommy. I think, you know, people might be kind of stuck still in the mentality that, you know, something loses its worth if it's owned by many. But, um, you know, I am a member of the common folk and I also go to the store. I too am a member of the common folk. Great, great, great. I'm glad. I just wanted to throw that. I didn't want you guys to think that I was above the common folk. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I am with the people. Never. Um, all right. Speaking of most of the people, um, Tommy has a PSA for all of the iPhone users out there. Tommy, can you get through this PSA very quickly? Because this episode has run very long. <laughs> I will. Friends, update your phones. There was a massive security breach. You need to update your phones. You need to update any iOS device. That is the Tommy PSA. Please do not get hacked. Please, like, right now. We're going to end this soon. Do it. Thank you. You just reminded me I need to update my iPad as well. Um, okay, well, that does it for us this week. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Juliana. It's always a pleasure uh, for us common folks to get together and chat. 
Um, if you don't already, please follow us on Apple and Spotify. Uh, follow us on any platform where you can find a podcast, actually. Uh, like and subscribe. Uh, leave comments. Tell us how nice we are. Uh, if you don't want your comments to be public, you can email us at podcast uh, at gray.com. That's podcast at gray.com. And as always, we just want to say thank you and we'll see you when we see you. The Five Things are produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin with support from post-producer Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.